You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. When it comes to being an actor, I think one of the biggest long-term goals we all have is a sense of contentment. Now, Oxford Dictionary defines contentment as a state of happiness and satisfaction. Now, happiness comes and goes depending on the role we're playing, the location, the pay. But it's that second part, satisfaction, that can be so elusive and difficult to find, much less maintain. Today's guest has not only found that satisfaction, but has been able to maintain it as well. Hi, I'm Ann Harada. I'm originally from Kaneohe, Hawaii, but now I live in New York City. And I'm an actor, singer, and I've been in the New York theater since 1987. Anne would be the first to tell you, though, that finding that happiness and satisfaction didn't come quickly or easily for her. In fact, her first Broadway credit came as a production assistant, not as an actor. She followed that up with ensemble roles in M. Butterfly and Susical. But between those two shows was a 10-year gap. And it wasn't until her next Broadway show that Anne Harada truly made a name for herself as Christmas Eve in Avenue Q. You think your life sucks? I'm coming to this country for opportunities. Try to work in Korean daddy, but I am Japanese. But with hard work, I earned two master's degrees in social work. And now I am a therapist, but I have no clients. And I have an unemployed fiancé, and we have lots of bills to pay. It sucks to be me. It sucks to be me. I say it sucks, 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 sucks. It sucks to be me. In our conversation, she talks about those lean years before Avenue Q, but also how she had to continue to work hard and push herself even after her breakout role at the tender age of 39. You know, I've been working kind of off-Broadway regionally and stuff like that, but I would not say that anybody cared or noticed at any point anything that I ever did. And so it was sort of startling to suddenly be like, oh, she's great. I'm like, well, thank you. Happy I've been here for a while. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of Why I'll Never Make It an award-winning theater podcast. I'm Patrick Oliver-Jones, a New York actor and singer, and each week I talk with fellow artists about personal setbacks and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can donate, subscribe, and find past episodes. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Technology has certainly been a big help in making it through eight seasons of this podcast, but sometimes it has its issues, as you'll hear in my less-than-ideal audio quality. But fortunately, Anne sounds great and offers some wonderful stories and advice throughout our conversation. Hi, Anne. It is so great to meet you and so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for coming today. Thank you. Now, you were part of the original Avenue Q cast, both on Broadway and in the West End. So what would you say are the biggest differences between performing in both cities, you know, from the production process as well as the audiences? 
you know, they're both so completely different. When we started Avenue Q on Broadway, uh, we had done it off Broadway at the Vineyard Theater, of course, and it was a big success. And that's why we moved to Broadway. But we had no idea that it would become a success in any way, shape, or form. We we just couldn't believe it was happening the whole time. And uh, we were kind of just along for the ride. Uh, whereas when it went to London, it was an established property. And so they were all very excited uh, to be doing this New York hit. You know, they had been listening to the CD. And I replaced a woman who uh, the British, as I think of her, the British Christmas Eve, who couldn't go on to do the opening because she had gotten cast in a TV show. And so they were really in a bind and called me at the last minute. They were, they had already started rehearsals actually, I think, um, or they were just about to, and they were, and they were like, could you come and do it? And I was like, guys, I have like a baby and a husband and my elderly parents live with me. And they were like, bring everybody. And it was Cameron McIntosh's office. So he kind of had the power to do that to facilitate a whole bunch of visas for a bunch of random people. <laughs> I was like, okay, if you want to, great. Um, you know, and I set all my conditions, which was like, okay, I have old people and a baby, so I need a flat with a lift, and I need to be close to a tube stop, and I need to be close to a supermarket and a pharmacy. I'm like, yes, 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 fine, fine. Well, 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 yeah. I mean, they needed you, so I guess you could kind of make the yeah, conditions. They needed yeah. me really badly. I should have come up with some better conditions, but that's what I needed. You know, I should have been like, I need a driver. You know, I mean, I didn't. But whatever the point was, they needed me desperately. So I knew the show. I walked right in, and it was great. We were very worried that uh, London audiences would not understand all of the American-y, New York-y jokes. Well, yeah, and they, and plus there's a lot of American cultural references. Yes, as well. of course. But they got them all fine. You know, it's not like we don't all watch the same TV shows. They absolutely knew who Gary Coleman was. They they understood everything. They got it. We changed a few goofy things, like they didn't know what a Long Island iced tea was. <laughs> so we had we had to come up with a name, like the name of a wacky drink, like a like a drink that is sounds like a really bad idea because that is the drink of the bad idea bears is a Long Island iced tea, right? So um, we came up with absinthe daiquiri, which does sound like a bad idea, right? I've had absinthe. Have you had it before? No, it, it sounds disgusting to me. It actually wasn't that bad. I had it in Russia. It's the only place I've ever had been able it's to have it. It's sort of licorice right? The taste. Yeah, it's definitely very yeah. sweet and licorice Yeah. Sounds disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> well, would you say that show, Avenue Q, was the one that really put you on the map as an actress? Oh, of course. Absolutely was. Yeah. Of course, I was 40. You know what I mean? It was like I'd already been haggling away for forever. And I, you know, I've been working kind of off Broadway regionally and stuff like that, but I would not say that anybody cared or noticed at any point, anything that I ever did. And so it was sort of startling at that age to suddenly be like, oh, she's great. I'm like, well, thank you. Um, happy. I've been here for a while. <laughs> so, so really Avenue Q was kind of confirming what you already at least felt or hoped about yourself as an actress as well. Of course. But so lots of times people don't get that break you know and you just don't know what that break will be ever yeah i've been here in the city more than 15 years now and i'm still waiting for that quote-unquote break myself yeah that magical that magical role you know um chip cyan when i worked with him and les miserables together 
Um, he said to me that he felt incredibly lucky to have had two parts that he will always be associated with forever. Do you know what I mean? Now maybe three, because I think his work in harmony is one of those kinds of parts. But, um, you know, that he was the baker and he was Mendel in falsettos, that like people listen to him forever on the CD. They'll, he's in their minds. Do you know what I mean? So for him, that's his legacy. And he's really thrilled to have had two chances. And he knows lots of people don't get one chance. You know, and I and I think about that all the time. Like, oh, I've had Christmas Eve and, you know, but like, what's, will I ever get another chance? <laughs> you just don't know. <laughs> and with regards to that, originating a role as opposed to, like you went into Les Mis, you were obviously doing a role that had been done by many different actresses. Is there yes, a difference far in the, better than I could ever do it, certainly. Well, I'm sure you were great, but is there a difference in approaching a role that's a, that's a revival that you're stepping into rather than one you're originating? How do you approach of them? Of course. You know, the thing about uh, doing a, a part that everybody knows, like Madame Thenardier, is that basically you just don't want to mess up. You know, it's such a well-known show, such a well-known part. Any of the parts that you take in a revival is a well-known part, or else they wouldn't be reviving it. So... Everybody knows the song. You can't mess up the lyrics of the song. <laughs> you know, like, you're very conscious of like your predecessors always. What I like about new work, and this is why I'm trying to concentrate on new work and why I've always cared the most about it, is that it's your chance to put your stamp on something, your chance to work with the creatives and say, what about this? Or I think maybe she would do that. That's the only time in your life you'll ever get to say. I think she might do this instead. Why don't we try it like this? You know what I mean? There's there's so little room to to do that in a revival. You know, you're trying not to mess up and you're trying not to suck. That's pretty much it. And that's a drag comparatively to doing a new piece. Yeah, you know, certainly in, in regional markets, there's a little less pressure because you don't have the, the eyes of New York on you like a, a Broadway revival. So a lot of the times directors will want to their spin on a show that's been done many times before so and that's fine that's absolutely great if you can justify it you know that's fine i'll do whatever um i'm up for a lot of interpretations of the classic uh canon um but i also think you know for me it's more fun to work on a new on new material Well, let's get into story number one, which talks about a new show that you were cast in a part that you really wanted, but then the financing fell through. And this is for Gilligan's Island, the musical. Now, now, I mean, it sounds fun already, but what was it about this particular show that made you want to be a part of it? Well, I had spent like a year and a half living in Chicago, and that's where Gilligan's Island, the musical, first made its debut. And it was a very big hit. And so I had sort of heard about it. And so when I heard it was coming to New York, I was very excited about auditioning for it. And I was cast as Marianne. And I was thrilled because I love Gilligan's Island, the musical. I mean, I love Gilligan's Island, the TV show. And I was just sort of like, oh, my God, I'll get to play Marianne. I'll get to have a blow for non-traditional casting, you know, that they would be willing to sort of stretch their mind a little bit and cast somebody not specifically like the original girl was good. Um and I was just really excited about it because I thought, well, it'll be funny and it'll be a chance for me to, I just, this was a long time ago. What do you say it was 92? Yeah, it was like early 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty early in the game. 
for me. And I just thought this would be great. I'll make, you know, I'll like, I'll be able to make an impression with something like this. I think it'll be a good role for me. I'm very much a Marianne type. At least I was then. Um, I was excited about it. Sure, which Schwartz was attached to it. You know, I just thought this will be fun. You know, hit or not a hit. I just thought that New York would, having a role like that, I would get on the radars of more people. And I was excited about it. And then, of course, the financing fell through and I didn't get to do it. Nobody got to do it. How far did it get in production? Did you even get to rehearsals or anything? We never, we got to the point where we were all cast and I was like, oh, great, you know, so-and-so's doing it. And then it just never happened. And it's just one of those things where you're just going to go like, what was that for? What was that all about? Did they actually call you or was it your agent that called you? How did you find out the show? Yeah, my my managers called me and said like, this isn't happening. They canceled it. I was like, okay, well, back to the drawing board. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what can you do? I mean, that's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I was part of uh, first wives club, which, which actually did get, get into production. And we were in Chicago for, for a couple of months and we were, I mean, they were still spending money the last week to get us to Broadway because they, they wanted to bring it to New York, but then we never heard anything. We never heard anything. Uh-huh. And our uh-huh. last paycheck finally came and it was paid through the bond. Wow. And, and for those of you who, who may not know, once a show pays through the bond, it means they ran out of money. They, they have no more money left. And so the bond is something that Actors' Equity forces producers to do in order to prevent such a thing so that, you know, your last paycheck will get paid. So once we heard that, we knew that there were financial troubles and it never went anywhere beyond that. So it, it does happen because financing shows and producing them, it's, it's, a, it's a rough game sometimes. Well, yeah, my first job in New York um, was as a production assistant on a Broadway uh, play called Slide of Hand, written by John Peel Meyer, who had written Agnes of God. And it was a thriller. Um, and this play opened and closed in a week at the court, now the James Earl Jones, and and working in this producer's office. And I, you know, literally, I, was, I worked for her for, for a few years. Um, but just in the process of that, learning about that particular show, I was like, well, I will never be a producer. I don't like it. It's horrible. Trying to come up with the money, asking people, you know, the whole process of raising money, I think is hard and not fun. So yeah, yeah, um, I've dipped my toe into it as well. And it's one of those things where it has given me a greater appreciation for what producers do for sure. But oh yeah, but but I think much like you, it's a job that I don't really like as necessary as it is. I just don't think that that's where, where I fit into the industry, even though right. I, you know, I'm trying to do my little parts here and there, but. Uh, of course, no, I think we're all trying to do our part to like get stuff produced and encourage, you know, talent that we love and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I'm not a producer. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. There's nothing about it. I enjoy So <laughs> <laughs> I totally get that. I totally get that. Well, one of the things that producers certainly do a lot of, and this gets us into story number two is readings and workshops before it goes into production. And you call yourself the queen of doing these readings and workshops, but then not being asked to continue on with the production. You call up Dave, the prom, and the most recent revival of 1776. Yeah. There's a, there's a thrill of being part of the ground floor of a new musical. Well, what does it mean to you to be that first actor putting your stamp on a role that, that hasn't even made it to the stage yet? Well, I mean, 1776 was different because, of course, it was, right, a, revival. That was a revival. And that was all women, right? Okay. 
So I had been cast as Franklin in the reading slash workshop, whatever it was. And the thing that really bothered me about that was that uh, ART was one of the producers of that, right? The tour, the national tour started at American Repertory Theater in Boston. So they were one of the producers. And I remember on the last day of the workshop, they were like, everyone, you're going to come to Boston and it's going to be great. And we're going to start this tour and it's going to be amazing. We love you guys so much, your family. And I should have known then, but I didn't. And then I found out, you know, in Playbill that I wasn't cast, that I wasn't going to get an offer. And I was like, great. You know, this is the part that I really don't like about reading slash workshops that go on to production. It's like directors at least have the decency to write an email or make a phone call to the actors who are- Right, at least an email. Yeah, I'm not not asking you for reasons. I don't care. Just tell me so I don't have to read about it on the internet. Like, I just feel like that's so rude and unkind, especially since that actor has already worked for you and- put in a lot of effort and the least you could do is acknowledge that and say, thank you. And I'm sorry. That's all you have to say. I don't have you didn't a whole, you know, reason why like we went with her over you. She's taller and I like her, whatever. It doesn't matter. I don't care. <laughs> but it's like, um, just, you know, just step up. Yeah. The same thing happened to me just a month ago. I'm scrolling through Instagram and this show that I had done regionally, which had aspirations of further development. Sure. So I did the regional production. We're all just kind of waiting to hear. I knew that one of the actresses had been replaced, but they did at least contact her and let her know. So then, you know, we're just kind of waiting. And then I spoke for Instagram and there the, one of the writers has our new workshop production. We're so excited to start rehearsals today. I was like, what, what workshop? What, what, what do you, yeah, that's how I found out I was no longer part of the company. I would not be moving forward with it. So yeah, it, it's a simple thing. I'm just sending out an email saying, we're sorry, but we wish you well. It's just something yes. like that. Doesn't Some sort of to... acknowledgement, you know, that's really, that's really all anyone could ask for. And I just, I hold that grudge so deep. I'm with you. I'm with you. You know, and, and I, many directors who fall in this category too. It's not just like one person. It's a lot of people. And I just go like, do you not realize that I will never work for you again. I would never listen to a thing you said or trust you. Like, that's just so rude. I just don't, I feel like directors would be better about that if they knew kind of like the ramifications of that kind of callousness. Especially when they get picky about the people, like some people who may have been in principal roles or bigger names, they'll get the call, but all the other 20 people under them, none of them get a call. It's it's that kind of pick and choose. That's gross. Right? Yeah. No, it's terrible. Now, the prom and 1776 revival, they did make their way to Broadway. But that day, it it still hasn't played in New York City. It was a 2017 workshop that you were a part of before it went to Arena. But you weren't a part of the Arena production. Certainly was not. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Stephanie J. Block was also in that, and she didn't move on. So so you're in good company, at least. Oh, no, I know. I... But probably the difference between us is that she probably had another job and I didn't. <laughs> um. Yes, that is true. The three stories shared in this episode are only part of the conversation. 
Subscribers get early access to the full interviews with guests, not only including these stories and the final five questions, but audition stories as well. Join Why I'll Never Make It and help support this podcast, as well as learn more about the guests and the lessons they've learned. Go to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe or find the link in the show notes. And another benefit of being a subscriber, you won't have to listen to any ads either. Now, moving on to story number three, this is about you not getting Miss Saigon and thinking that you had no future in Broadway. Now, had you felt like this before? Was that self-doubt kind of creeping in even before then? Yes, I think, you know, it's impossible, especially when you're part of kind of like a minority group, right? Um, And you have a lot of actor friends within that minority group. And you see big shows coming along and everybody else gets in those shows and you don't. You kind of go like, maybe this is not for me. Like, I'm not, this is not what I should be trying to spend my time doing. Like anytime there's a King and I, I feel this. I have never been in a King and I. I cannot get cast in a King and I. Nobody wants to see me in King and I. That's probably okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> like in the long run. But it just, at the time, you're like, what? Why not? You know, uh, you just feel like, what's wrong with me? Why don't you like me enough? You know? So anyway, uh, Miss Saigon is one of those shows where literally, you know, I knew everybody in it. I was friends with everybody. Um, I just didn't have the skill set to be in it. And I had to kind of like come to terms with that. You have to be a dancer to be in that show. And I'm not a dancer. And I tried really hard to be a dancer for that show and failed miserably. All my audition stories are about failing miserably at the dance call, really. Oh, oh, same here. I'm not a great dancer. I can kind of move well. But once they start tapping and once they start moving their arms different from their legs, I don't know what's happening. Right, exactly. Well, and the things like, you know, especially like that was back then when I was young and I could sort of understand, like, they don't know me. You know, they don't know that I'm terrible at this. Um, But like even recently for soft power, you know, soft power that was at the public theater. um, I had to go to the dance call for that. And I was 55. And I... I knew every single one of those, that creative team, every single one of them I'd worked for, including the choreographer. And I was like, you are making me go through a dance call? Don't you know better? Right. You know me. You know me. You know I me. Can... It's like, you know that I can't do that. You know that I, well, how bad I am. I literally fell down during the dance call. Oh, like, I've been there. Yeah. But of course, all the other girls were like, oh my God, are you all right? Like, you know, this ancient crone has to be helped up off the floor. And I was like, this wouldn't have happened if any one of you had the sense to go like, why is she doing this? You know she's not going to do well. Oh, oh I feel for you. I've been the oldest one in the room before. I, I don't know if you were the oldest in this room, but I'm just saying. I know oh, I, I was. Well, I yeah, I know I've been the oldest in the room. And I'm like, this is not what I want to be doing with my day or my life. Well, it just, it made no <laughs> sense to me. I'm like, you know who I am. You know, I mean, I'm a character actor of a certain age. Really? You need to see me try to do this stuff across the floor? Okay. But it made no sense. And then when I saw the show, I was like, I don't even see a part I could have remotely played in this stupid show. Why was I even there? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Oh, well, you know, I was looking at your Broadway credits and 
it looked like there was a, a 10-year gap between M. Butterfly and Susical, and that was the 10-year gap of Miss Saigon. So while it was on Broadway, you weren't on Broadway. I'm not saying that there were other shows you could have been in, but I just noticed that there was a 10-year gap, and I wondered if you just decided to focus your energies elsewhere, apart from Broadway, or or what was going on I during that? You think I have a choice about that? Uh, I, I I know I do. I just took work that was offered to me. I went out on every audition I could get. I took I did a lot of off Broadway and a lot of regional theater. Those are the parts that they offered me. Did I want to stay away from Broadway? Nobody wants to stay away from Broadway. We all want to work on Broadway all the time. Too bad for you. Doesn't happen like that. At least not to me at that point. So whatever. I I wanted to do all of those things, but nobody cares. Nobody cared. Yeah, it is interesting. Once you get a Broadway credit, then you hope the next one comes and the next one. You know, you want it to be a string of things. But anytime there's a gap in it, people can look and be like, were you working? Were you doing anything else? And of course, as actors, well, no, I'm just doing other jobs. I took a cruise ship or went to a right, regional exactly. I Yeah. I had a lot of day jobs to fill waiting around or whatever it was. You know, I never stopped being an actor. Just you never heard of any of the jobs I did, (laughs) which is fine, you know. What kind of day jobs do you normally do or have you done in the past? Well, my biggest day job and my most that I'm most proud of is I was a fact checker for Self Magazine, which means that I went to Condé Nast and fact checked all day. And those were the days when there were magazines. Good luck, young listeners. You have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, But yeah, my friend from college was the head of the fact-checking department, and he hired me because he knew I was a fast reader. I could read incredibly quickly. So I could read articles. I could read whatever source material, whip through it, find the citation, check it off, and, you know, verify that it was true. That's what I did. That was my day job for a really long time. And the great thing about that job was, again, because I knew the editor, I knew the the guy in charge. It's like, I could just go and audition whenever I had an audition and come back. If I got a job, I went, okay, see you in a few weeks. Bye. You know, yeah, the, those are like the dream jobs when you can come and go and yeah. they recognize that you have other work and you'll take it and then you'll come back. No, it's great to find those kind of jobs. I, I have one of those right now myself. So it's been, been really great to be able to still be an actor and still call myself an actor and do all the auditions and everything. But then no, I have this job waiting for me when I get back. Yeah, well, that's what my life was, you know, for a really long time. Until I had to meet you, which kind of changed the landscape for me. Um, after Avenue Q, I have not really stopped working for any enormous length of time. Do you feel like the Avenue Q put more of the choice into your hands as far as where you could go, the things, the roles you wanted of to course. do? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Because after Avenue Q, I never had to explain to anybody who I was. You may have to do a dance audition, but you don't have to explain. Of course. <laughs> but they knew who I was. Right. You know, oh, of course, the dance auditions. Oh, dear. Okay. So uh, <laughs> I should have had to do that one. That was just a mistake on everybody's part. I should have just said, like, no, thank you. Goodbye. You know, but well, yeah, I it's didn't. the same for me for different reasons. I'm six three and long, and just dances don't look the same as me as these great dancer bodies that are you know next to me and 25 years old. So it's like two of these things are not like the other. So you should recognize this, especially when you know people behind the table. 
But uh, uh, I feel you. Every single one of them. Like, why are we doing this, guy? <laughs> getting back to Miss Saigon, did it take a while for the sting of not getting that show lesson? As you got more work, did it start to feel like, okay, I can put it behind oh, me? Of course. And- <laughs> well, this is the thing. So, you know, so I'd had my call back and whatever, and I didn't get it. And I was crying. And my roommate was like, do you seriously think your career is done because you didn't get Miss Saigon? Just like that. And I was like, well, kind of, because if I can't get into like these big Asian shows, what am I going to get? And he was like, and do you not see that you have so much more to offer than that? That's not even who you are. That's not even what you're good at doing. You know, it's like, you're going to be fine. And he was right. But I had to figure that out for myself. That it was like, I, and this is like the number one thing that I believe and hang on to and try to tell every young actor is that you can only go for so long. When you're young, you try to kind of figure out what kind of slot do I belong to? What type am I? You know, can I be the ingenue? Can I be, you know, the Ado Annie part? Can I be whatever, whatever slot that you have? And then you try to be that. You show up, you change your dress, you change your hair, you try to, you know, look a certain way, be a certain way, lose a little weight, gain a little weight, whatever it is, right? You're trying to fit a type. And it wasn't until, you know, even like until it took me till I was 40 to just go like, you can just be you. And you should just be you. And you're not going to be successful going after things that are not you. (laughs) It's like, you're okay. You know, you don't have to try to fit into some kind of crazy mold. But it was like, you. I don't know if you're not old enough, but like in the early 90s, it was like all the girls, we had like a uniform. We all wore like a Laura Ashley dress with a big collar and character shoes. And we walked around like that to every audition because that was what the girls looked like. I don't know how to describe it any other way. It's so dumb in retrospect. It's like, who's going to hire me in a Laura Ashley dress and character shoes? Nobody. I'm not that girl, you know, but I thought I could be. And I thought that's what I needed to be. And so like, no wonder I never got any work. I wasn't me. Right, right. You were trying to be something else. And I then... was trying to be something else. And like, but you know, like, you know, when I was young, when I was first starting out, I was trying so hard to be like an ingenue with like long hair and you know, a girl with a ponytail that, you know, what I, I don't know, a tub Tim or something where I was a type that I actually never was, should never have tried to be. But you don't know that when you're young and you're just trying to figure out how to get your foot in the door. And you're trying so hard to like, well, if I do this, if I dress like her, if I do, you know, it's impossible. That's all you are. And being Asian did that put you in your own box do you feel from casting or even yourself did you put yourself oh yeah of course i mean when especially when i was starting you have to understand um when i was starting non-traditional casting was not really a thing yet Uh, and so any job that anybody got was like a miracle that's why if you couldn't get into an asian specific show you just felt like well now i'll never work because usually in a mainstream show just like white people if you got a part you'd be in the ensemble and usually you'd have to dance two strikes, right? Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was just like, this is not going to be for me. 
you know, like these kinds of shows and these kinds of roles are not going to be for me. I have to figure out a way to work another way, which is why I ended up working off-Broadway and in regional theater, because those shows were not as mainstreamy, more willing to take a chance. Does that make sense? Yeah. It sounds like that that you were having to figure out yourself as well as casting oh, in the sure, industry of course. to figure itself out too. Because it was like, you know, like people would go like, well, you're talented, but I don't know what to do with you. And I'd be like, well, I get that because I don't know what to do with me either. But here we are. What are people going to accept me as being? What kind of parts can I do that pe- aren't going to make people go like, oh, no, what, you know, what's happening here? And I just feel very lucky that I had some people that were like, she's good and I want to put her in something. And, you know, so what if nobody sees it? It's fine. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining Why I'll Never Make It. And don't forget, you can become a subscriber and get bonus conversations by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe or just look for the link in the show notes. Well, that about does it for me. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Background music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and John Bartman. Be sure to join me next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.